Hello, and welcome to Why Philosophy. This is a podcast about philosophical topics and studying philosophy at BYU. In our episodes, we'll be doing a few things. First, we'll get to know professors and faculty in the BYU Philosophy Department. We'll talk about their interests, their research, and their classes. We'll also interview students and alumni who have gone off and started careers. We want this podcast to be, first and foremost, a fun and engaging show for anyone who's interested in philosophical topics. But we also want it to be a good resource for anyone thinking of majoring or minoring in philosophy, or are currently navigating the major. We will talk about how to be successful in philosophy, ideas for using your degree, and anything that will help us all move a little closer to the good life. So we hope you'll give it a listen and enjoy the show. Hi, I'm McKay. And I'm Macy. And I'm Angela Faulkner. Professor Faulkner, welcome to Why Philosophy. Thanks so much. So, would you mind telling us a bit about yourself uh, growing up and how did you get to philosophy? Was it a roundabout way or did you always know, I want to do philosophy? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. Well, I grew up here in Utah. I lived here most of my life. Um, I got into philosophy because of my mother. She was a university librarian at Utah State, and librarians are so proactive. They're information seekers. They want to find everybody information, and that describes my mother exactly, Mm -hmm. except even more so for her own children. So she was always trying to find us things we'd be interested in. So she took me to a debate at Utah State where they were debating abortion, two different philosophy professors, and I was just in awe. I thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. So then she helped me sign up for Dr. Sherlock's philosophy class while I was still in high school, and that class turned out to be everything Dr. Sherlock thinks is interesting, which is the <laughs> class that you should try to take from every professor, right? The, the class that's just all the things they love to talk about, that's the best possible class. So it was a great introduction to philosophy, not because it was such a carefully scripted introduction to philosophy, but it was just someone who's a true philosopher talking about the ideas that moved him and encouraging us to talk about those ideas. And so... I loved that, and then my mom brought me to Education Week here at BYU, and Terry Warner, a BYU Mm. professor, was talking about Friedrich Nietzsche, and now this is my take like 30 years later or something, (laughs) but he seemed to be saying like Friedrich Nietzsche, if he had been introduced to the restored gospel, he would have gone with it. I'm I'm quite skeptical about that view now, but at the time, I was very... I was excited. That sounded great to me, and I loved it. So then as a first-semester freshman, I had three philosophy classes, and my parents were a bit, ooh. And I said, Phil's GE, no worries. But I never never turned back. For me, it was from the beginning. And did you know then, when you watched the abortion debate, that you'd be interested in topics like medical ethics? Well, I can trace my interest in medical ethics to when I was a fourth grader. I was They had a pullout group for some of us, and we were talking about parthenogenesis and cloning, and I just thought, this is the most fascinating stuff. So, yeah, my interest in medical ethics goes way back. Mm-hmm. And throughout this journey in philosophy, who comes to mind as some important key mentors in this journey? Oh, well, a lot of former BYU professors. So Cody Carter, I think I took five classes from him while I was here. He has this tremendous humor. 
So he was a wonderful teacher. Also, he was a good example of someone. There were a lot of people in the department then who seemed kind of holy, like they were so religious. And so it's like someday I'd like to be, if if Cody ever listens to this, this is a compliment. Uh, but he wasn't like he wasn't like that. You know, he was like a real person who kind of shared with us his struggles. I remember him talking about Kant and saying, you know, here's what Kant says and talking about the service project they were doing and how he didn't want to do it. You know, he was just a real human being. And that was an awesome way of teaching. And so he was a wonderful mentor. Um, my father-in-law, Jim Falconer, I really feel like I learned to read and write philosophy with him. Uh, he was the first philosophy professor I met as a freshman. I walked in, oh, Dr. Falconer. <laughs> and so it was, it was a class called Reasoning and Writing. It was uh, Philosophy 150 at the time. And it was, you know, just learning the very basics of arguments and how to write about them and how to raise an objection and respond to it and how to read things carefully. So he was a great influence. Um, David Paulson was a wonderful example of good teaching because I took that class and there were there were a small group of us who were really interested in going to graduate school and he saw our passion and he basically let us teach the class and every day was, you know, we were all excited and we uber prepared and he, he knew how to stand back and encourage us at the same time. It was fantastic. So uh, speaking of your philosophical journey, you did your graduate work at Notre Dame and you did your topic, your dissertation on political philosophy and not medical ethics. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came to be and what you did your research on? Yeah. So one person I didn't mention in my last answer was my one of my dissertation advisors, David Solomon. He's a huge influence in my life and a wonderful mentor. Uh, I was the TA for his medical ethics class, which I loved, and I just wanted to do more, 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 more. But he said, you know, you have to do things to be respected so you can get a job. You, you need to do the basic philosophy first, and then you can do medical ethics later. So he really pushed me towards doing a dissertation in something other than medical ethics. So I did political philosophy, as you said. My dissertation is about citizen virtue. If you woke up one morning and decided to be an excellent citizen, what virtues would you be trying to cultivate? So for BYU students who want to be good citizens, do you have any advice from that dissertation or just anything that you've seen since? Yes, I'd say my advice is, I mean, first of all, being a student is a great way to start because you need, you need the skills that you get as a college student with a well-rounded education. So just practicing the skills of reasoning and writing. I mean, I think often in, in our philosophy writing class, it's tempting to think about, you know, let's talk about how to publish in an academic journal. And that's great, but most of our students are not going to go on to be academic philosophers. And honestly, that would not be a good goal for most people. 
But the writing class is super relevant to your life, I think. And of course, we have lots of people who are going to be attorneys, and it's obviously relevant for that. But I think writing is really important for citizenship. For if you're a person who's able to make arguments, and we certainly hope you are that person when you graduate with a degree in philosophy. So if you're a person with the ability to write, to make arguments, you want to be able to do that both in speech and in writing to advocate for things that need to happen. So jumping forward to today, how would you describe your current philosophical interests? I'm really interested in medical ethics. Uh, I've decided if I want to do this hard, time-consuming thing of being a philosophy professor, I really need to focus on the things that are important to me. And I'm super biased, but I think it's really important for everyone at the university. I think everybody should take my class. I'm also interested in lots of things that are related to medical ethics. So my interest in political philosophy hasn't really waned because I think often people think, oh, medical ethics, so ethics, moral philosophy. And, and certainly that's important to study, but political philosophy is every bit as important, I think, for thinking about topics in medical ethics because there's the, oh, the moral versus the legal. You know, what do we require people to do? What do we just invite them to do? I'm also interested in other types of applied ethics like environmental ethics and ethics of technology use and uh, epistemology. Well, so maybe that answers our next question. That is that if you couldn't do medical ethics, what do you think you'd be doing? Oh, yeah. I, I think I would be super interested in moral philosophy and political philosophy, which I still have an interest in, and epistemology. It, it's interesting, though, being one member of a small department like this, your interests tend to be shaped by the interests of others. So when I first came to BYU, you know, I did a lot more in epistemology, but now we have a lot of faculty members doing epistemology, so there's not, you know, there's not much scope to follow that because other people are doing that and I'm happy to be the medical ethicist. So as an undergraduate at BYU, if there was a student trying to get into medical ethics sometime in the future, how would you recommend that they start now to get to that end goal of being well-versed enough to study it? So I, I think the best thing to do for studying every kind of philosophy is to read, 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 and not, and the good stuff, you know, not just social media, but you know, you should be reading the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic, uh, and, and of course, the great works, Aristotle, Plato. Uh, I think reading is huge. You want to build your vocabulary. I think part of that also is you want to study languages. Often with our current focus, which is a lot heavier on analytic philosophy in the department, there's maybe less attention on learning a language. But I think that is really helpful for building your vocabulary. And not just building your vocabulary, but your understanding of distinctions. I mean, looking at the verb to know in other languages, and I think of German and the difference between wissen and kennen, uh, yeah, super important. Auf jeden Fall. So um, do you think that applies as well for just studying philosophy generally, or would you have specific advice for studying and being successful in classes? Yeah, for being successful in classes. So yeah, the same advice of read, 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 
but also you should be in office hours. It's such an underappreciated resource. I mean, we all have posted office hours. We all should be showing up for them. And so many times they're empty. And I mean, that's great for professors getting things done, but it's not good for students. It's such an opportunity to get to know your professors and to get help one-on-one and just to get ideas. So I think students should definitely be at office hours. I think that's huge. And you've mentioned how important reading is. Do you have any specific tips for reading, sometimes hard to read philosophy and writing about it? Oh, yes. So I remember asking my dissertation advisor this when I was reading something really difficult. What is your advice? I think the life of a student is so often one where you don't get enough sleep. It's hard to read text when you don't have enough sleep. So first, if you can, get enough sleep, but most of us don't make it. I think the second thing is, uh, I, I mean, maybe I'm a dinosaur here, but I recommend books on paper. And one reason I recommend books on paper, not just the research that shows your reading comprehension is likely quite a bit better on paper than digital, but also because you have the ability then to write on your book. And that's the, mm-hmm. that's the advice my dissertation gave, advisor gave me. He said, you know, if they say three things, then, you know, write a little one in the margin and a little two and a three and circle things and be. So I think every philosophy book, well, and most books in general should be treated as consumables. You know, you you buy it, yes, they're expensive and you're going to use it up, that's what it's for. You should be writing all over it and it really helps attention and comprehension, I think. No, I really like that. And with that, how do you think that learning those kind of skills can also help with writing about philosophy and coming up with your own arguments? I think in terms of coming up with your own arguments, I mean, of course, you can put ideas and questions. I mean, questioning the text is the most important thing, right? So one of the main things you should be writing in the margins are questions for the person writing the text. And I think that's kind of the key to getting started with your writing. What's your advice for students who want to, on the one hand, do graduate school, but on the other hand, want to keep their philosophical skills up? Uh, I think the responsible advice is that no one right now should be encouraged to go to graduate school in philosophy. I think there are certain group of people who can't be discouraged from it and those are the ones who should go the ones we can't discourage Mm, i I think the responsible thing is to discourage people because it's just so hard the chances of getting a tenure track job which is if you know what the life of an adjunct is and the health insurance issues and people who are trying to cobble together a living or support a family when traveling between multiple institutions i just think if you understand what being an adjunct professor is you can't really see that as an acceptable career goal. But then if you look at what are the what is the number of tenure track positions open today versus adjunct positions, I think the message is clear that most of our students can't hope for a tenure track position. And in that case, um, graduate school, unless you're on an enjoy the journey track, which is awesome if you're able to do that. Many people don't have that privilege. But if you're not on an enjoy the journey track, but you're going to graduate school because you want one of these rare tenure track positions, uh, you should not do it unless we just can't talk you out of it. And then in that case, you're saying I have to do it. So if you have to do it, then you do it. What advice would you have for people who aren't going to grad school, but want to keep their philosophy up? 
Well, I think the answer is read, read, read. I mean, philosophy is reading. Now, I mean, even better if you can find a peer group to read with other people who are, because philosophy ideally is not just reading, it's also discussing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the, the clear thing is to keep reading. And I, I'm not a fan of really narrow disciplinary boundaries. So I wouldn't say just read philosophy, but I think read all the things. In, in the context of Brigham Young University specifically, what might you say if someone were to ask you how they can study philosophy to have it help them navigate their faith? I think there are a lot of great conceptual resources in philosophy. I think one thing that's really important is seeking out mentors in being a faithful person who's also, I guess it's fair to say most people who study philosophy are intellectuals of a sort. So I think one of the most valuable things about being able to study philosophy at BYU is having people who are believers to be your mentors. And I encourage every student to seek out people like that. Certainly, that's what I had as an undergraduate here myself, were people that I knew were believers who could explain you know, why they believed what they believed. I think there are people just like that here now. I was watching Derek Hatterley's YouTube video the other day. Well, it's not a YouTube video. It's a, it's the philosophy department's recording of yeah. the philosophy lecture series. It, and uh, I was watching that and he was talking about, you know, why I stay. I thought it was very powerful. And w the truth is we have lots of people like that here. I think also seeking out so not just the live physical people you can spend time with here, that's super important, but also uh, looking for models of faith and philosophy. Philosophy is an extremely secular field overall, but there are people like that. In my field of medical ethics, a really great example is Leon Cass, who used to teach at the University of Chicago, and Michael Sandel, who's still producing work, and Charles Taylor, um, people like that are wonderful models of faith and philosophy, and I think following an example is one of the most helpful things you can do. And how do those thinkers that navigate questions about medical ethics using faith, how do they go about that? Uh, well, I, you see people go about it differently. Leon Cass is from, uh, well, I guess Leon Cass and Michael Sandel are both from a Jewish tradition, and that's interesting because there's some, there's some key differences between Jewish medical ethics and what um, Christians might believe in some cases. So that's interesting. But I guess I don't think of an answer as a, a method so much as they're informed by their tradition. I guess I'd think of the Catholic tradition and its emphasis on the sanctity of life when you're reading about things like abortion. I mean, interestingly, many of the papal encyclicals count as philosophical works. I mean, John Paul II was actually a trained philosopher. So there are things like that that you can look at. You, I mean, if you're a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, it's important to be aware that our tradition is distinct. And so although there are things we can learn from the Catholics, um, it's not right to assume that our conclusions would be the same as theirs. And of course, mm -hmm. every person needs to seek out their own conclusions. So on that note, do you have any advice for Latter-day Saints who are trying to navigate issues concerning medical ethics, either theoretically or even practically? 
Yeah, well, I think one underappreciated resource is the General Handbook of Instructions, which is now available on the internet for everyone to look at. When I was an undergrad here taking a bioethics class from the biology department, the the professor gave us like a bootleg copy, which I was really (laughs) uncomfortable with. Today, you, you know, you don't even need to be a member of the church. It's easy to read it on the internet. It's out there. It's transparent. It's for everyone. Now it's no papal encyclical. Again, I think it's really important to know the ways in which our tradition is different than other people's. And the leaders of our church are not philosophers. I'm glad they're not. I know they're called by God. Um, But what this means is we don't have papal encyclicals. So if you look up the position on any particular question, you know, is in vitro fertilization morally permissible, for example, uh, you may find a paragraph or two. Often that's all you'll find. But I think the general handbook is a great place to start. It's surprising how many members of the church are... Well, ignorant is such a strong word, but they do not have knowledge on many of the positions that are expressed in the general handbook. And it seems like that's valuable knowledge to have. So that's a good place to start. Shifting gears a little bit, if you could only recommend three books outside of scripture, what books would those be? It's so hard to limit yourself to three, but I, I was thinking about this and I think you have to go with the great books. Because just in terms of biggest bang for the buck, you know, or the <laughs> to get the most mileage, if you're only going to have three books. So I'm thinking Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, um, Plato's Five Dialogues. They put them all together in one book, <laughs> so that counts. And I mean, for the third one, I was tempted to say Charles Taylor's Ethics of Authenticity, but that doesn't count as a great work. So mm-hmm. um, since I'm interested in medical ethics, I... I know Gordy Mauer would disagree with me, but I'd be tempted to say John Stuart Mill and uh, Utilitarianism or On Liberty. That's two different books, but they often put them in the same book together. So uh, I, I just think reading these great books is so helpful because it it unlocks the key to so many other books. Today, I think it's tempting for people to think, oh, you know, white, male, European, we can leave this stuff on the shelf. It's old. It's yesterday. But the truth is, if you want the wisdom of the ages, these books are referred to by so many other people. It's really difficult to understand many of the books that come later if you haven't read those books. I mean, if you don't know what Kant says about, you know, a mere means and someone being a means to an end, how can you reason about these other things? And Kant is very difficult to read, which is one reason why I hesitate to put him as my third, although it's tempting. (laughs) Um, Kant is super difficult to read, but in terms of how much you get out of it, it, it's just incredibly important. So yeah, I'd go to the great books just because I think they have a multiplier effect in the other books you're going to read, unlocking the meanings of those other books. So do you have some fiction recommendations as well? There's so much. I mean, and there are a lot of good movies today. I I think you'd probably be a better source on (laughs) movies than I would. (laughs) Yeah, I've always been a fan of Brave New World, as you say, but these days I don't read much fiction. Mm. Okay. Well, uh, what are you, speaking of movies, do you have a favorite one? Oh, Gattaca. Gattaca. (laughs) Easily, Gattaca. (laughs) Gattaca's pretty good. And uh, how about personal hobbies outside of philosophy? What do you do when you're not philosophizing? 
Well, the get-to-know-you style question, I'd say, oh, ice cream making and oh. family history. Um, the, the true, well, and family history is a huge hobby for me. It's a, it's the opportunity to be Nancy Drew in real life. I mean, I am a detective. <laughs> I am figuring out things no one else has known. I'm really interested in DNA and how you can use that to unlock your family tree. The truth is, though, as a philosophy professor and a mother, the, my big hobby right now is figuring out how to cook a healthy dinner in under an hour <laughs> and figuring out what dishes can you serve to a vegan and someone who only wants to eat pasta and someone who only wants to eat vegetables. <laughs> like, what dish can you serve all three of those people plus two very hungry teenagers? <laughs> <laughs> Philosophy hasn't done enough to prepare me to <laughs> solve these problems. That's a very noble hobby. <laughs> now we're going to move on to maybe our favorite portion, and that's overrated, underrated, where we're going to give you five philosophers that you can either rate as overrated, underrated, or just right. So, to start off, Aristotle. Oh. Well, I mean, it's hard to say he's underrated because I think everyone thinks he's great. I think he's great. So, I, I only don't say underrated just because I do think he tends to be appreciated. So I, I guess just right, although I kind of want to say, well, everybody needs, maybe he's underrated because not enough people are reading. If you're going to read something, read the Nicomachean Ethics. What about St. Thomas Aquinas? Well, he's super influential, but he's not who I'd read next. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think about John Stuart Mill? <laughs> Underrated. He just gets no respect. I love John Stuart Mill. I was referring to him in class the other day, and one of the students was nodding along and offering comments, and I thought, yeah. And then I realized he'd been in my Intro to Ethics class. <laughs> and the other students were all blank, like, what are you talking about? And I thought, we've got to spread more John Stuart Mill around. Mm -hmm. There's some important ideas in there. People tend to dismiss utilitarians, and as someone who is heavy into the virtue ethics tradition. I am well aware of the problems with utilitarianism, but John Stuart Mill has a lot to teach us. How about Elizabeth Anscombe? Oh, she's awesome. But I, I, I have to pull a family history card here and say, if we're going to talk about Elizabeth Anscombe, I want to talk about Philippa Foote. And then when I think about Philippa Foote, I want to talk about Judith Jarvis Thompson. And I think <laughs> they're both so underrated. Philippa Foote is my sixth cousin, Oh, wow. which you can find out if you do your family history, <laughs> how you're related to people. And I cannot stop looking on Family Search to figure out how I'm related to famous philosophers, which is embarrassing. <laughs> and most of them have no offspring, so it's really hard to be related to mm -hmm. them. But anyway, uh, yeah, so when you say Anscombe, I immediately think of Philippa Foote, and then I think of Judith Jarvis Thompson, and I think these women are incredible and really exciting role models. And then a contemporary, uh, one that you've met, Alistair McIntyre. Oh, I, I think his uh, After Virtue is a great book. But like reading Kant, you have to put in the effort, and then you get a lot out of it. Well, Dr. Faulkner, thank you for appearing on My Philosophy. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. <laughs>